Okay, as you know, uh, I, I hope you know, we are working our way through the book of Galatians. We're almost through. Uh, only two more uh, lessons in Galatians uh, after this. Uh, but today we'll be taking a look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Very familiar verses. Real quick. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 7, reading through verse 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Okay, the theme of Galatians, of course, is justification by faith alone. Uh, We are free from the bondage associated with the Mosaic law, with keeping the law. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. We saw last week in the opening verses of chapter 6 the importance of restoring into fellowship the brother who has been overtaken by sin, as well as the importance of making sure that we don't allow ourselves to be similarly overtaken. The emphasis there is on ensuring that we are loving the body of Christ, and loving the brethren means wanting them to enjoy, to have the joy of their salvation. When we sin, we quench the spirit. We feel the guilt that Christ's sacrifice has already taken care of. For true believers, our relationship with God is secure. We're not going to lose our salvation, but our sin can affect how we feel. It affects our guilt, the shame that we feel when we do sin. But that's why it's so important to stay in the word, because his word is his primary method of communication with us. The longer we go without reading our Bibles, without praying, the easier it is to let the the world, the flesh, and the devil make inroads into our lives. 1 Peter 4.8 tells us, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. This doesn't mean we're trying to hide the sin or tolerate other people's sins or ourselves, our own, but it gives us the motivation for restoring our wayward siblings. Love, agape love, an active choice to bring that brother or sister back into fellowship because God first loves us and makes it possible for us to love one another. And as we've been learning in our Sunday morning worship going through the book of John, this is Christ's commandment for us that we love one another. Now our passage this morning uh, Galatians 6, 7 through 10, begins with a couple of unequivocal statements of absolute fact. Verse 7, the first fact, God is not mocked. Second fact, whatever you sow, that you will reap. We've talked quite a bit about the law in the book of Galatians, but primarily about the Mosaic law as presented primarily in the Ten Commandments. These statements in verse 7, God is not mocked, you shall sow what you shall reap what you sow are also laws they're not but they're not guidelines for behavior these are more have more in common with the physical laws of the universe these are facts like i said of absolute truth things that are inviolable unbreakable unchallengeable just like unbreakable physical laws think about gravity 
It's not just a good idea. It's the law. God has also put in place unbreakable moral and spiritual laws that are just as absolute. Because God exists and because he has built a world that is governed by absolute physical laws, then you can be sure that the moral world and the spiritual world are governed by, governed by laws that are just as absolute, or else he would be inconsistent because you can't have one without the other. And we know that God is always consistent within himself and in his creation because we can observe the absolute consistency of his character just by observing the physical world as we see it. Modernists might say, well, there, is no, there are no moral absolutes. Yeah, we have physical absolutes, uh, but the same person who has convinced himself that there are no moral absolutes is quite confident that if he drives his car at 100 miles an hour into a brick wall, there is a physical law that will have a great effect on him. So they allow for laws to be absolute and inviolable in the physical sphere, but not in the moral or spiritual world. But like we said, that would make the creator inconsistent with himself. So there are laws, and God has governed the moral and spiritual world with just as much law and order and consistency as he has the physical world. The universe is structured in every dimension on the inviolable, unbreakable laws of God. Our passage presents, like I said, two of these laws. We'll look at uh, uh, the second half of verse 7 to start with. The law of the spiritual world and the moral world. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. This is both a moral and spiritual law. It always works. It is never bypassed. It is never avoided. It's inexorable, inviolable, unbreakable. God is consistent with himself. Now here in this passage, the Apostle Paul tells the Galatian believers that this law applies to them. As we've already observed, he's nearing the end of his letter. Uh, He has carefully presented and expounded on his main thesis, justification by faith. So he's wrapping up the epistle with a few words of final admonition, if you will. Majority of what he wanted to say, he has already said. He established in the first couple of chapters his apostolic authority, you know, why he is telling them what he's telling them the second chapters second two chapters three and four he confirmed and validated the divine principle that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone Uh, and that of course is in itself another inviolable spiritual law and in the last two chapters uh, he's shown that the christian life is not bondage we are free It's not bondage to a legal system. It's not about fleshly self-effort. It's freedom from the law. It's walking in spirit. So he's already covered the major facts and concepts that he wanted to address. Uh, And as we've already seen in the passage we went through that that, that Bob uh, taught on last week, verses 1 through 6, he's given instructions to the strong Christians as to how they can restore those Christians who have fallen into the trap set by the false teachers and who have begun to believe that the Christian life is a matter of legalism, of keeping rituals and ceremonies, to bringing them back into fellowship and back into that, uh, the joy of their salvation. But there's another group that Paul has in mind. He realizes, even after having said all that he has said, that there are some who have fallen into this error 
and believe that the Christian life is a legalistic thing. They're falling on their face in sin. But there are some who want to get picked up, as we talked about last week uh, in chapters 1 through 6, where he says, now, when that guy's ready, he wants to get up. Then you pick him up, as Bob said, you pick him up, you hold him up, and you build him up. So that's the one who is willing to be restored to fellowship. But he also knows that there are some hard, belligerent ones who aren't yet convinced. Those who are hanging on to the forms of Judaism and who still, in the back of their minds, may be believing the heresy of the Judaizers, that the Christian life is a matter of legalism and self-effort. There may have been even some unsaved people connected to the churches in Galatia who think that salvation is only obtained through circumcision because that's what the Judaizers saw, Judaizers taught. But whether these individuals who are looking for a work salvation or true believers who have fallen or been misled into carnal effort, fleshly self-effort, there's still some who don't yet realize their need to be restored. So he wants to drive home the point to them that they need to repent they need to change their conduct because the consequences of their doing, of consequences of what they are doing, are bad. There will be a price to pay. So he tells them, "Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What you're doing now is going to reap for you a terrible consequence if you don't change. If you keep sowing to the flesh, verse says, verse eight says, if you keep sowing to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. We'll talk more about that later. So." His last word of warning toward those people who haven't yet seen that he is telling the truth, they're still hanging on to that Judaizing heresy, he wants to warn them of the consequences of their behavior. And this, the type of warning he's giving should be strong motivation for them to change. So he presents this law of God that is going to be evident in their life, should be clear to them if they don't change. If they keep on sowing to the flesh... If they keep on living carnally, they keep on by self-effort trying to please God, even if they're unsaved and they're trying to gain salvation by works, they are sowing to the flesh, and they're going to reap corruption. This is their warning. Now, as we look at our passage, we'll see that this admonition, this law of God, is presented in four basic ways through these four verses. We see in verse 7, the law stated in verse 8, the law explained, verse 9, the law fulfilled, and verse 10, the law applied. And I'll admit, uh, after 15 minutes or so, yes, I stole this from John MacArthur. So uh, those of you who are familiar with uh, his uh, commentary on Galatians, this will be very familiar to you. So first of all, uh, we see the divine law stated in verse 7, verse stated, verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. It's a pure statement of undeniable truth. And so he reaps. He begins this by saying, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. But aren't the Galatians already being deceived by the Judaizers? Obviously, they have been deceived. They are being deceived. So what he's really saying is, stop being deceived. Obviously, don't continue to be deceived. Remember back in, verse, in chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul challenged them, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? These Judaizers came in, these false teachers came in. 
and were deceiving them. They moved in. They were teaching the false gospel about having to get circumcised to become Jews in order to get saved, and then having to keep the law of Moses and the Pharisaical regulations in order to stay saved. So they were being deceived. They were deceived. So he, he tells them, don't continue to be deceived. Now, the word that's translated deceived there is the Greek word planao. And I'm not a Greek scholar, so close enough, right? Uh, it means to be deceived, but it's actually, a, that's a secondary meaning. The primary meaning, very closely related, obviously, is to be led astray, made to wander. So he's telling them, don't continue to be led astray. The false teachers were leading them astray into a life of legalism, following rules. They were trying by self-effort, by their own uh, uh, strength, to earn God's favor for their salvation. So he's telling them, don't let yourselves be deceived. Turn away from that and come back into the straight way. So we have to ask, can Christians be deceived? Isn't this talking about unbelievers? Now, the principle that is taught in verse 7 uh, can't be applied exclusively to either unbelievers or exclusively to believers. It's more of a general principle that applies to all people, to anybody, that whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That's applicable to all people. And in our passage, Paul is stating this general principle. Now, later on, we'll see the application for the believer, but the general principle is that there are consequences for our behavior, and the consequences match the behavior. So he says, don't continue to be deceived about God's absolute laws. It's a no-win situation for you. So now we have to look a bit, little bit uh, at who deceives us and how we can be deceived. If you look at your uh, discussion questions, that first couple of questions are about uh, being deceived and uh, some of the verses that uh, you can look at later. But uh, we're going to look at a few verses now. Uh, you don't have to turn to them, but uh, I ask you to listen to them. Jeremiah seventeen nine, very familiar verse. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So our own heart can deceive us. Obadiah, chapter 1, chapter only, verses 3 and 4. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So our own heart, as we said, can deceive us. First John 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. In James 1.22, be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So yes, we can deceive ourselves. We don't always need an outside source. Our flesh, our sinful nature, if you will, can and will deceive us at every opportunity. But there can be outside sources that will seek to deceive us as well. Uh, false teachers. Matthew twenty four twenty four states, many false Christs and false prophets will arise, leading all kinds of people astray in a time of tribulation. And part of the end time prophecy states that men are going to be deceived again and again. Now, these false teachers, different set, were deceiving the Galatians, but they are more than eager to try to deceive us today 
as they will in the end times. So that's why it's so important for the, Christ, for the church to teach and for the Christians to know the whole counsel of God. The better we know the scriptures, the less likely we are to be deceived. You can also be deceived by choosing the wrong friends. Uh, listen to 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't kid yourself. If you associate with the wrong crowd, they will corrupt you. Don't be deceived. And we can actually be, dece- be deceived sometimes even in the church. Romans 16.17 says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. We must not let ourselves be deceived by troublemakers in the church, either in the local church or in the, the professing, professing believers in the, uh, uh, who call themselves Christians uh, in the church at large. Um, those who would, dis- would sow discord, dissension, and trouble. Now, uh, we've been blessed to have very little of that here at Cornerstone, at least recently, uh, but it does require constant prayerful vigilance from each of us to make sure that we're not deceived. So, the Word of God tells us we can deceive ourselves. We can also be deceived by outside deceivers. Behind it all, of course, is Satan. Revelation 12.9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So he is the ultimate deceiver from the beginning. He deceived Eve. So, so when the Bible says, do not be deceived, it's hitting us right where we are. Because we deceive ourselves, number one, we do that so often. And then we're deceived by false teachers, and then we're deceived by Satan and his supporters, his emissaries. Living in our current day and age, it seems like we're subject to more deception now than at any time in history. Just the fact that there are more people alive now than at any time in history uh, means there are more deceivers, uh, more people subject to deception, and it's, we see it everywhere. We see it everywhere. And uh, it's not going to get better. Second Timothy 3.13 says, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being. That's part of the pattern of the end times. Now, of course, we've been in the end times since the uh, ascension of Christ, uh, well, since the, the church uh, came into being in the book of Acts. But uh, it, like I said, it's getting worse. Like the Bible says, it's getting worse. So don't be deceived into thinking you can violate God's law without consequences. But then, you know, then we, sometimes we, we rationalize. We'll say, okay, I'm, yeah, I understand that, but, but I'm a Christian. I've got grace. God will forgive me. Yes, <laughs> he does forgive us when we repent, but there's still an inviolable law that is being taught here. And if we violate that law, whether we're a Christian or not, it's going to bring consequences. So he says, don't be deceived. The next part of verse 7 tells us why we shouldn't be deceived. God is not mocked. 
So what does that mean? <laughs> Mocked, fooled, outwitted. You can't fool God. You can't outwit him. Uh, the Greek word muktarizo means to turn up the nose at, to sneer at God, thinking you can violate his law with impunity. You can sin and get away with it. Um, some people, they see the grace of God and think, well, they can get away with, they're free to do anything. They can get away with it. They say, well, I'm forgiven. I'm completely forgiven. All my sins are washed away. Uh, the cross accomplished everything I need. I'm free to do whatever I please because I'm under grace. Now, this is classic antinomianism uh, that uh, Bill was teaching through in, uh, in the book of Romans in the Sunday evenings a few weeks ago. Um, and Paul addresses this specifically in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. No way. Ain't going to happen. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We can't. If we're dead to sin, we can't continue to live in sin as Christians. So we might try to do what we please for a while, but we're going to pay the consequences. We cannot mock God. We can't sneer at God's laws. The word mock, mock also carries the connotation of ignore. And while sneering at God seems like kind of an active uh, step, um, ignoring him seems less violent, if you will, almost in, carries that indifference. But they, means the same, it comes from the same word, ignore, mock, sneer. Ignoring God is the same as sneering at him. How many times in our lives have we said, well, I know I shouldn't be doing this. It's, I know it's sinful, but I'm going to do it anyway. I've done that. Uh, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I don't really care right now. I'm going to satisfy those fleshly urges. Uh, and when we do that, that's mocking God. That willful sin. And when we do that, it's going to have an effect. That's what this verse is telling us. It just doesn't work because we have violated an absolute law of God. It's like jumping off a 20-story building. The absolute law of gravity goes into effect. And any person who wants to have their life in violation, to live their life in violation of God's law, will pay the consequences. You can't mock God and get away with it. Book of Jude, chapter 1, again, chapter only, verses 17 and 18 tell us, Beloved, remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. And isn't that what we're seeing today? The world of people eagerly violating God's laws, but there will be consequences. So that's what this is saying. That's what this verse is telling us. The law that says, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap, is the law of God. And that's why it says God is mocked. You see, you're violating his law. You're violating him when you violate his law. That's, that's the simple, it's, it's a simple law, it's, it, and it's unbreakable. What it really says is, don't fight against God, because there will be effect. It's cause and effect. Now, in the Old Testament, this law is uh, stated in several places. Uh, just a couple places we'll, we'll see here in Job, 
chapter 4 and verse 8, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble, wickedness, will harvest it. Same thing. You plow iniquity, you, you sow wickedness and trouble. What you harvest, and that's what, you'll, what you sow will, is what you will harvest, what you reap. And then again in uh, Proverbs one thirty one, so they shall eat of the fruit of their own way. And Proverbs eleven eighteen, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. So on the other hand, we talked about those who sow trouble get wickedness, but those who sow righteousness will receive a reward. So again, same thing. What you sow is what you reap. Hosea chapter 8 and verse 7, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. And then also in Hosea uh, chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, verse 12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, God's loving kindness. But the next verse gives us the flip side. But you have sowed, you have plowed wickedness, and you have reaped injustice, iniquity. It's the same principle. What you sow is what you reap. Now, now this, the law of sowing and reaping is based on agricultural principles. The harvest is determined by the plantings. What you, whatever the, the type of seed you plant is the type of fruit you're going to harvest. Like gives birth to like. But even so, God's laws are not violated. It's true in the physical world. It's true in the moral world. The fruit of our life is determined by what we plant. And it begins at the beginning of our life. Proverbs 22.6 says, again, a very familiar verse, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So that it's true in a moral sense. The law of sowing and reaping works in a moral way. We, we can see this sometimes in the frustration and the futility of human psychiatry and psychology. So many people are looking for help, but they don't understand that their problems are the result of what they've been sowing for a lifetime. Now they're reaping what they sowed. They sometimes may recognize their hopeless condition, but the only thing that can ever change them is Christ. They have to be made a completely new creature, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. So any psychological or psychiatric treatment that attempts to change one thing into another apart from Christ will never have true success just can't do it so the law is physically true law is spiritually is morally true thirdly it is spiritually true spiritual law when a man so, when a man sows sin he reaps the consequences of that sin the old testament is very clear on this numbers 32:23 says but if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. That's the same law in the spiritual world. Be sure your sin will find you out. You cannot sin without consequence. That's all our sin, even the ones we think nobody knows about. Psalm 90, verse 8, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Jeremiah sixteen seventeen. For my eyes are on all their ways, says God. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. He sees, he knows everything we do. And we're accountable for all violations of his law. And we know that there are consequences. Now, the Bible has many passages that, uh, that tell us that in the spiritual world, when you violate God's law, that you do pay the consequences 
For example, Isaiah 3 and verse 11, Woe to the wicked! It will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then Romans 2, 9. There will be tribulation and distress, or anguish, for every soul of man who does evil. Fairly straightforward, not? Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. You can't violate the law of God and get away with it. But again, we come back to the question, well, what about grace? What about forgiveness? What about mercy? Yes, salvation is another absolute law of God. And praise be to the Lord, the law of salvation converges with and then actually supersedes the law of sowing and reaping in its ultimate sense for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. One way to understand it, because we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it's not what we sow that, what we, that we reap. We will reap what Christ sowed because God sees us in Christ. That's the ultimate sense. But even so, as a Christian, when in our earthly flesh we do violate God's standards, and as believers we do sin, just read Romans 11, there will be consequences in this life. The Bible says that God scourges and disciplines those he loves, but he doesn't scourge us for not sinning. When we violate his laws, there will be consequences. But as we said, in the ultimate sense, the law of salvation intercepts the law of sowing and reaping and cuts it off. So ultimately, we will reap what Christ has sown, his righteousness. That's the fantastic truth of salvation. But those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior will reap what they have sown. If you put your faith in him, receive him as your Savior, ultimately, the law of salvation intercepts, and you will reap ultimately what he has sown. Believe me, he'll then begin to give you the strength in this life through the Holy Spirit to sow things unto God. So we see that in the aspect of eternity, for the Christian, the law of salvation supersedes the consequence of the law of sowing and reaping. But in the day-to-day life of the Christian, the law still affects us. So just to give an illustration, a person gets saved, but that doesn't necessarily stop them from sinning or even getting cancer. Bad things still happen to people who are Christians. So, you know, and we're still trapped in this fleshly body, sinful body. So the law of cause and effect, the law of sowing and reaping still applies even in the Christian's life. But it's in the ultimate sense of the law that has been removed by the act of Christ on the cross that his righteousness takes care of of our eternity. Okay, so we see the law stated in verse 7, going back to Galatians chapter 6. In verse 8, we see the law explained. Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So this tells us we have two fields in which we can sow, either the field of the flesh or the field of the spirit. So what does it mean to sow to the flesh? Put simply, it's choosing to gratify the cravings of sin. Now, the flesh is the contact point for sin. Our flesh is the contact point for sin. So 
When we sow to the flesh, we are choosing to gratify that particular craving that comes from that contact point rather than to gratify the desire of the spirit. And the result of gratifying the flesh is corruption. We do what our fleshly gratification tells us to do. We've sown seed to the flesh, and we'll get the results. Now, with respect to the Galatians in particular in this passage, their specific fleshly act was their attempt to live the Christian life in their own strength, legalistically, in their own flesh. They were trying to do things to live the Christian life with a fallen nature through their own efforts. And we're told the results right here in verse 8. Corruption. It means decay, spoiling. Ultimately, it means death. So when a person sows to the flesh, he reaps decay, he reaps death. Now keep in mind, this is a general principle. The Christian who sows to the flesh shall reap corruption. For us, it's the joy, it's the loss of joy, the loss of peace, the loss of contentment that we have with Christ. But for the unsaved person who continues to sow to the flesh all his life, because he can't do anything else, that end, uh, ultimate corruption ends in death, separation from God. Of course, for a Christian, there could be that a similar result, uh, times when a Christian who sows constantly to the flesh reaps death too. God will just take him home. So we've seen that in, uh, in some aspects, in some examples in Scripture. You sow to the flesh, and you're going to reap corruption. For some people, that does mean death. Uh, we have in Galatians, in chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, more detail on the type of fruit we harvest when we sow to the flesh. Galatians 5 and 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, they're manifest, they're clear, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Now, we've gone through this before. Uh, I'm not going to go through each one again, but uh, that's what you can expect to get. That's the type of fruit you're going to harvest when you sow to the flesh. To sow to the flesh is to gratify rather than to, to crucify the flesh, which is what we're told to do. Uh, British theologian John Stott says, and I quote, Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fancy, wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, Every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we read pornographic literature, every time we take a risk that strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. End quote. Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they don't ever reap holiness. You can't. Holiness is the harvest of sowing to the Spirit. If you see a Christian with sin in his life, it's because he's sowing to the flesh. But we don't have to sow to the flesh. It tells us here how we can sow to the Spirit, and from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what does it mean to sow to the Spirit? It means the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. Back in verse uh, uh, 26, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 
uh, means to be preoccupied, preoccupied by the Spirit. Instead of satisfying the flesh, we're simply yielding to the Holy Spirit, walking, controlled by the Spirit, Christ-conscious, studying the Word, praying, dominated, allowing ourselves to be dominated by the things of the Spirit. And the result right there in verse 8, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Something we as Christians, the true followers of Christ, we're enjoying that right now, aren't we? We have that eternal life right now, life everlasting. It's the quality of life that we have even on this earth. It's a different type of life than we used to have. Spirit-filled God consciousness. So when a Christian really sows to the Spirit, he enjoys all of the quali- qualitative features of this eternal life. Now, our eternal life is going to go on forever. It is never-ending. However, there are times when we don't enjoy the blessings of our eternal life because of our sin. When we sin, we enjoy the qualities of that Spirit-filled eternal life. When Christians sin, we can be even more miserable than unbelievers. Because of sin, we forfeit the qualitative joys and blessings and riches of our eternal life, at least while we have that unforgiven sin. We don't forfeit our salvation, we don't lose that eternal life, but we do forfeit the joy, the peace, and the blessings that come when we're sowing to the Spirit. So the Christian who sows to the Spirit really reaps the qualities of his new life, the fruit of the Spirit, as presented in Galatians 5, and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the result of sowing to the Spirit. But the unbeliever has no capacity at all to sow to the Spirit. He receives none of these no everlasting life, either qualitatively or quantitatively. He receives corruption, only corruption, that ultimately ends in eternal death. That's for the unbeliever. So we've seen the divine law stated in verse 7, the divine law explained in verse 8. Now we see the divine law fulfilled in verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 6. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Um, most of us, okay, me, I grew up on this in the King James, the New King James. Uh, let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due time we will reap if we do not, if we faint not, right? So it means the same thing. Don't get tired of sowing to the Spirit. Uh, the Greek word for lose heart is ekkegeho. It's a word used for... Uh, for example, a farmer who begins to slow down because he's getting tired, he's fatigued. He said, uh, Paul is telling us, telling the Galatians, don't get tired, don't get weary. We all know Christians who've been so faithful to Christ for years. They've been sowing to the Spirit for many years. Sometimes they get to the place where they wonder, so when am I going to see the harvest? But uh, we, we can see... Uh, Bible has so many verses of encouragement, just to read a few of them for those folks. Second, Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 13, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 
And, of course, the ultimate example of someone who never gave up, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostilities by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Sometimes we do get weary of well-doing. We get tired of teaching, tired of serving the Lord, tired of sowing without a lot of reaping, don't see the harvest, don't see the results. But we have to look to Jesus who endured. The next verse in, in Hebrews 12 says, we haven't yet resisted to blood. We haven't yet died in our endurance. Some have. We've seen the martyrs who have sown to the Spirit, uh, and they have paid the ultimate price. God has given them their reward, but we have to keep on enduring. Uh, while we're on this earth, we must be faithful because God is faithful, and the harvest will come. The rewards will come. But a word of caution here. Don't confuse spiritual weariness with spiritual laziness. Be not weary in well-doing. What does well-doing mean? It means doing good, actively doing the deeds that he has called us to, actively obedient to his commands. It's good in the simple sense of being good, doing good things, not in word only, but in deed. Keep up the good work, is what it's saying. There are no doubt many Christians who think nice thoughts and think about doing good deeds, but don't ever do them. There's no follow-through. These are the ones who are spiritually lazy. These are the ones who, make, who will probably miss out on some of the rewards that come at the harvest. But don't lose heart. Don't grow weary in doing good. The Apostle Paul is another excellent example of active well-doing. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 1, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. We aren't wearied, he says, in verse 2 of, uh, again, 2 Corinthians 4. But we have renounced the, the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Uh, skipping down to verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Christ, so that the life of Jesus might also may be manifested in our body. And then in verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not grow weary. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul, 
is an outstanding example of one who didn't faint. So let's not lose heart in doing good. Jesus never did. Paul never did. We have to keep at it. A verse here in Galatians says, In due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. In due time, in God's time, the right time, we will enjoy his reward. Now He's not talking about salvation. We already have that. Now, in this life, eternal life. The verse is talking about future reward. But it also comes with a caveat, with a warning. You can serve Jesus, but you can run out of gas and lose your reward. That's what, you, what the verse says. You'll reap if you don't grow weary, if you don't give up. Second John, verse 8, reiterates this caution. Watch yourselves that you do not lose those things which we have accomplished, but to, that you may receive a full reward. In other words, our, by our faithfulness, we can forfeit something we've already accomplished. But when we sow to the Spirit, we will reap the rewards He has ready for us. Some will be in this life. Most will probably be when we see Him in glory. But there will be rewards for those who sow to the Spirit. So we have the law stated in verse 7, explained in verse 8, fulfilled in verse 9. And now, in verse 10, we see the divine law applied. And Galatians 6 and verse 10, so then... While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. This is where the practical meets the principle. While we have opportunity. Now, this really means let us take time. It's not saying do good when others come and give you the opportunity. It says do good by looking for opportunities. Let us make time, make opportunity to do good. Do good to all people. This includes the unsaved. This is critical because unbelievers get their view, they develop their opinions about Christianity and Christians from their observations of our interaction, interactions with them. Our testimony before the world and the good things we do for all people have a profound and lasting effect. First Peter 2 and verse 15 says, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. By doing right. So the best way to stop unbelievers' criticism of Christianity is to live right, to do good things for them and in their view. Maybe we should worry less about how articulate we are about presenting the gospel and think more about how good we are to the unsaved people we meet, how kind we are to our neighbors, how loving we are in our interactions with all people. That's the heart of our testimony. Uh, there's a, a saying, I heard it years ago, you're probably familiar with it. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. might want to think about that, unpack it a little bit. What you do speaks louder than what you say. Uh, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul says, In all things... Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. That's real witness. And then the next chapter, in verse 8 of chapter, Titus 3, he says, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These, are thing, these things are good and profitable for men. So... Even if you're shy about sharing Christ, saying anything directly to another person, 
if you start doing good things, de- good deeds, making opportunities to do good, God will bless that time and will create the opportunities for you to say what you need to say in his time. But if you have many words to say, but don't back it up with good works, your witness will be less effective. Verse 10, do good to all people, to unbelievers. But then he adds, especially to those who are of the household of the faith, God's family, his called ones, the church, the household of the faith, the body of Christ. Ephesians 2 and 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Now our good deeds should be done to benefit everybody, but most of all, as our first priority, we should display our love for fellow believers by doing things that benefit them and the body of Christ. Even this is a form of witness to unbelievers as they see that God's children take care of one another. We care for one another, even as we do good things for all people. And that's, uh, again, one of the uh, discussion questions is, what does that look like? How do we prioritize taking care of one another? So, something to think about. So, that brings us to the end of our uh, passage here in Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Uh, In summer, we have uh, the divine law of God stated that God is not mocked, that what you sow, you will reap. We have the law explained, sowing to the flesh results in corruption and death, while sowing to the Spirit results in the fruit of the Spirit and everlasting life. We have the law fulfilled as we live by and walk in the Spirit without giving up when we get weary. And then we have the law of God applied as we do good to all people, especially God's children.